Well, this morning we're um, at a kind of an interesting section in chapter 2, sort of a transitional part that connects sort of some things that have come before and some things that are coming. Um, really, this week and next week are sort of two parts uh, of, the, uh, of one whole, um, because he deals with Sabbath. Uh, he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he says here at the end of our section, and then goes right in to show how he's the Lord of the Sabbath in the next section. So, But this um, this particular part, it was like... Uh, fishing with a net. I mean, you just cast the net over this section and you draw it in, and there there are so many um, lovely things in this portion of Scripture we're going to look at today. It, it really is going to be hard to cover them all. <laughs> it's one of those ones ripe with uh, a lot of fruit and a lot of rabbit trails. But I'm going to read the section that we're going to, we're going to preach on today, and then we'll pray together. So we're in chapter 2 of Mark beginning at verse 23, and we're actually only going to go to verse 26. But this is what the word of the Lord says. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are, are, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for always providing uh, the food to us that we need, the food to sustain our souls, the food to sustain our bodies. We know, Lord God, that you um, have a unique message for each one of us this morning. You know exactly what words we need to hear. We know that you will, through these words, by your Spirit, work on our hearts and our minds and our faith. I pray, Lord God, that you would open our our ears, open our hearts and our minds to receive the glorious and good food. Deliver to us this morning through your Son. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the present passage is very different in content from the previous story about fasting. But it's very it's it's generally similar in construction. In both narratives Jesus is put to the test by the Pharisees because of the behavior of his disciples, in which Jesus argues using a story and then makes a veiled statement about his own authority. So the previous story was about fasting. Uh, this one is about eating grain in the field. And though those seem like totally disconnected things, the structure of the stories are are very similar. And, and what happens, right? He is accused because of his disciples. He responds by get, telling them a story. And then at the end, he makes this sort of what seems like a disconnected statement about his own authority. And, and this is sort of the structure all through this whole section here. Chapter 2, uh, verse, starting at verse 13, all the way through 3, 6, those are similar stories. There's three of them there. And they all roughly contain the same number of words which this suggests their length and their form stem from an oral transmission, right? It's almost like somebody who preached on a regular basis had these three stories to make a point. They would pull them out and tell them about Jesus. And as we know from the introductions, introductory sermons, Mark here is, is he recorded the sermons of Peter. So Peter told these three stories together, even though I, I think if you take all the Gospels together, these stories didn't necessarily happen in, in exactly this order. 
Uh, this wasn't exactly how the, the events played out. But the stories are put together by Peter for a purpose. And then Mark is also putting them together for a purpose. Now, I hope that the immediate question in your mind is, well, you know, why won't they just tell us what happened in exactly the order in which it happened? And, and that's how moderns are, right? We're very reason-based, logic-based, linear-based. What, what was wasn't as good as what is, which isn't as good as what's going to be. That's because evolution has invaded our minds, and this is how we think about everything. And so what we want is we want the whole story. We want to start with day one and tell me what happens all the way through. But that's not how the authors of the Bible work. And, and, and it's going to show, I think, partially, it's one of the things that causes so much um, confusion and difficulty for us in reading the scriptures. Now, there's a lot of really odd things that happen in this story. The first one is, okay, Jesus has a pattern now. He goes into a city, and he preaches and teaches, and he does things, and then he goes into the wilderness. We've covered that. So what phase is he in here? Where are grain fields? Are grain fields usually in the city or the country? The country. He's out in the wilderness. And peeping from behind some bushes are the Pharisees. My, right? The first thing I want to know is, why are the Pharisees like following him around? Why are they like out in the woods and the wilderness watching him? They seem really creepy. Uh, and then what, what even the commentators missed is they immediately then start asking him questions about the word of God. Now that sounds familiar. Jesus is in a wilderness and he's asked questions about what the word of God says and doesn't say. So who are these Pharisees immediately associated with? Satan. There you go. Man, you get extra communion today. <laughs> okay. It's fascinating, isn't it? How this works. Who, it, 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 the way that this story is being told, without saying who these Pharisees are, we immediately, if we know the typology of the story, exactly whose side they're on. We know exactly whose side they're on. Uh, I was covering this recently. Uh, the boys and I are going through Narnia, the story, all seven books, and, and, I'm, and we're going through them in, in, in sort of a history of theology and ethics, uh, which is a wonderful way to read Narnia. But one of the things that, the, that happens is there's this robin that comes and is trying to lead the little kids, and the little kids are trying to determine if they should follow the robin. And one person says, well, and in the stories, the robins are always good, so we should trust them. And, and what you find here is, is there, there is this assumption that if you are well-read in the right literature... <laughs> You immediately come to a story like this, and you're able to recognize who the good guys are and bad guys are. So this is actually just proving the. I'm I'm showing my hand even here. If you read the Bible often enough, you come to recognize almost immediately who the characters are in real life. If you can exegete the word well, you can exegete the world well, right? Because there's this is how the world works. The the world is like the Bible. The Bible is like the world. And the more you read it, the more you understand the world you're in. So that's one fascinating thing. We're going to just leave that hanging out there. Don't worry, these threads hopefully will come together in the end. Now, we know that Jesus' disciples are not well-trained. Okay? They did not go to school. They did not learn. Um, you know, they didn't get PhDs in theology. They're, they're following Jesus around. We know from other portions of the Gospels that the, the, um, there is a lot of tension here between the know-it-alls and the dum-dums. 
Okay? This is essentially how the Pharisees look at it. We know everything. You're an idiot, and you're followed by idiots. And so where do you get off telling people what to do and how to do it? The Pharisees themselves in John chapter 7, verse 49, say this. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Right? There's all these people there wanting to get near Jesus, trying to figure out what's going on. Right? They're, they're sheep without a shepherd, as Jesus says. They're lost without a leader. And the thing that the leaders can say about them is they don't know the law, and so they're accursed. They're damned. Look at all these damned people standing around here shouting things. They don't know anything about this. Where do they get off even coming here? Where do they get off asking these questions? Where do they get off following this guy? They hate, they hate people who don't know the law. So the very people they're supposed to lead, they despise them. Now, furthermore, Jesus himself in John chapter 7, verse 15 and 16, is this is what the Jews have to say about him. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? <laughs> never studied. What do you mean by studied, I guess? So Jesus answered that my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Right? You may have sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a famous teacher at the time, but he sat at the feet of the Father. Right? Remember when he's 12 years old and he's in the temple and he's telling the scribes there a few things about the Bible they didn't know? <laughs> right? From a very young age, he grows in wisdom and understanding because he studies the scriptures. He gets it right from the source. He doesn't need to read anybody's commentary on it because he reads it and studies it so thoroughly he understands it himself. That's in another thread we're going to leave dangling. The learning and devotion to God of the, these Pharisees, their learning and their devotion to God does not make them more like the, the God that they say they serve. The Pharisees are proud and their learning has not humbled them. Everything that they've learned has not taught them humility at all. It's done exactly the opposite of humility. They are not faithful shepherds of Israel. They are despots and religious tyrants. They use the word of God as a means to oppress. They use the word of God as a means to elevate themselves and give themselves position and to keep everybody else who they don't like, who isn't worthy, down. Jesus was without formal training in the law of the feet of some recognized religious teacher. This culpable ignorance displayed by his disciples with regard to subtle legal points would but condemn their master further in rabbinic eyes. This is what I mean by that. Okay? There, there are some subtle things that if you go to the right kind of teachers, you learn you're not supposed to do. Now, those things don't have anything to do with what the word of God actually teaches. <laughs> and, and so it's almost like Jesus is exposing himself by being followed around by these people. It's like he wants to cause trouble, and it's not just what he says himself. It's the fact that he's got these guys who actually don't know the subtleties. They're going to get him into all kinds of trouble. This is the second story in a row where what they're doing right, causes them to question him. Where, why are you letting them do this? And Jesus is fine with that. Jesus is fine with his followers getting him in trouble. There's another thread that we're going to leave dangling for the moment. What we are going to see next week is that the professional jealousy of the theologians of Israel is in fact what hounds Jesus to death. The crowds that are following him and not them, everyone who's loving him, all these wonderful things he's doing, this, this jealousy over their, the following is, is ultimately what's going to cause some of these people to want to murder him. 
The men who think they know God are filthy in their self-reliance, their self-justification, and their idol worship. Right? You become like what you worship. And so if your God is a stone tablet with laws written on it, what are you going to become like? You're going to become like a stone tablet with laws written on them. And these guys are as hard as it gets. These guys are the Mount Everest right, of hard hearts. It is a big, giant rock in the center of these men. Now, let's unpack some of these things, expand some of these threats. The Old Testament, of course, forbade work on the Sabbath, Exodus 28 through 11. The scribes enumerated, okay, because this is now how they work. We're not allowed to work, and so let's talk about what that means exactly. There are 39 kinds of work that are prohibited, and they would go through the scriptures and they list them all out. These are the 39 things you cannot do. Half of this list was reaping. I don't know how reaping became such a big deal to them, but reaping was something that was also allowed by the law. And, and the idea is, in an agrarian society, you go out and you pick all your, all your crop, right? You harvest it. Now, what you're not supposed to do is keep sending the harvesters out there until you get everything. You're supposed to go and you're supposed to harvest it, and then you're supposed to, there's all this stuff, you can see all this fruit hanging on the tree, all on the vine. And you leave it. Because the poor and the widow are supposed to be able to come along with their sack and then harvest it after you so that they can provide for themselves. Right? So gleaning is something that God instituted to protect people. And how are the Pharisees using it? Right? They have all these restrictions about gleaning. Why would they do that? Why would they have half of the laws that you're not the work you're supposed to do on Sunday? Think about this. They own the crops. That's why. Because on a Sunday, when all, the, when all the religious guys are down at the synagogue reading the scriptures, the people who aren't usually allowed to get at the food are going to probably sneak out there and try to get themselves a bag of grain. And so to protect themselves, they make these extra laws to make gleaning like almost a capital offense. So you see that they're using the law to not only protect their wealth, to protect themselves, but to oppress people. We're going to get more into that next week. They're using the Sabbath for something they're not supposed to be the exact opposite of what they're supposed to be using the Sabbath for. Now, the second thing is, if you have 12 guys walking by a field, picking some grain and eating it, does that seem exactly like the same thing as gleaning? Because gleaning is, I'm going to take this sack, and I'm going to go out here, and I'm going to pick as much as I can, because this is my, my shot at feeding myself for the next six months. Is that the same thing as walking along, being hungry, and picking a few grains and chewing on them? No, they're clearly not the same thing. They're clearly not the same thing. Their grievance is that in plucking ears of grain, the disciples are in fact reaping. The Pharisees are, um, were not the secret police. Okay, this is what they kind of seem like at this point, are they? They're following Jesus and his followers around, asking them questions about the law. Seems like they're ready to jump on these guys and put them in prison. But they're not the secret police. That was not their role. They were an unofficial political party. Okay, they don't have official registered political parties then like they do now. It was, it was more informal than that. They had been around for 200 years, though. This group of Pharisees have been around a long time. They don't have any official authority, but because of their learning, because of their, the respect that they get at the temple and everything, the people had elevated them in their own minds. 
Look at these guys who know the word of God. Look at these guys who follow the word of God. Look at these guys who are clean and pure and undefiled. They're amazing. And so they have a lot of clout because, because they, they've acquired it through a rigorous, rigorous, rigorous obedience to the law. They were self-chosen and had no authority to make laws or enforce them. But they did, however, have considerable influence on ordinary people. Now, some of them were wise and devout and holy. I'm not going to say that they were all wicked and nasty. But some, though, behaved like nosy journalists in the modern world, setting themselves up as self-appointed guardians of public morality, spying on people in the public eye, right? As soon as somebody who gets a little influence, who might be a competitor of theirs, the first thing they do is they go out and they start following them around, just like what we see here, digging up dirt, right? Kavanaugh... Recently, we saw something very similar to this. Kavanaugh gets appointed to the Supreme Court, and the next thing you know, we've got people telling us how we got drunk one time in high school. It's like, where did you even find that information out? Right? You got these journalists, these self-chosen leaders of morality going out there now to dig up stuff on people so we know how bad these people really are. And, and, and where do they get the authority to do that? How is that journalism? Right? Have we ever thought about that? Modern day Pharisees <laughs> you, in, of, of secular culture, you'll generally find working the news desk somewhere. These guys want some dirt on Jesus because they don't like that the crowds are following him, and that's why they're sneaking around in the bushes watching what he does. What's funny is that there is another law that I'm pretty sure Jesus is breaking, and that is you're not allowed to walk more than 1,999 steps on the Sabbath because once you go... Once it gets to a half mile, once you take that 2,000 step, you've traveled, right? If you stay on the, on the south side of that, it's fine. You're just walking around. But you're literally supposed to count your steps, right? In the days before they had those, those trackers on your phone, right? Can you imagine now if that, it's like, okay, everyone, take out your phones. We're about to confess. Let's see who's walked more than a half mile. Which I'd be pretty impressive if anyone walked a half mile by 10 o'clock in the morning, but... So again, here, right? Now, how much rest are you getting on the Sabbath if you're counting your steps? Now, what I think is funny is they don't mention that one, actually. Do you know, and, and do you know why? Because they're out there, too. <laughs> and, and we know from the gleaning is more serious. And so they're like, well, we're not going to mention the traveling one. We're going to go after the gleaning one. Because look at those guys having a snack. How dare them? So it's quite funny, the hypocrisy. Keeping the Sabbath is, in fact, one of the Ten Commandments. It is in the law of Moses. It is a serious thing. But they've set the fence, at, at, right? They, they want to protect the law of God so much so that they've set the fence and they've laid a burden on that no one can carry. They talk a lot about this later in Acts and Romans. The leaders at the time created a, like so much, so much strain in order to be holy that they've, they've created a burden no one can carry. And this is what religious people always do. If you're religious at all, if you follow the scriptures at all, you will do this. There's no avoiding it. Because we, we love God, we honor God, we want to protect the things of God. And so what we're going to do is create, we're going to expand our interpretations of laws as wide and big as we can in order to protect the thing that we're trying to protect. Now, oftentimes what happens is, you know, God falls right off of that throne Something else gets put on that throne, but yet we're still applying the law in the same way, right? How far, husbands, have you gone with the you will obey me 
thing. Right? Even when your idea is stupid. Even when your idea is as unwise as it's going to get. And there you are, pounding on the law, saying, no, no, no. Right? The, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I hope that's not what you hear in your home, buddy. <laughs> but this is what husbands do. Parents, right? We want, we, we, we want to control things. We want to control our spouses. We want to control our kids. We want to control our environment. And sometimes the way we do that is with the law of God. And this, this started in the very beginning. In the very beginning. If you go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, we see the first Pharisee that ever lived. And in 17, this is what it says. God is speaking to Adam. And he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, that's one law. There's one law. Seems easy enough to keep, doesn't it? But then Satan comes around, and he's talking to Eve, and what does Eve say? What does Eve say? In chapter 3, verse 2 through 3, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay. That's not what God said, is it? Now, many of us are like, okay, that's a little, it's a little intense, don't you think? But think about this for a moment. Adam is given a command by God, and he takes it seriously. He takes it so seriously that he doesn't mind on his own authority to add to it. We're not allowed to eat that Eve. In fact, you know what? Don't touch it. Don't even touch it. Don't even come that close to it. Right? He's catechized her in the law of God. Good husband, right? Look at that guy. Man, he taught his wife the law of God. What? He is washing her in the word. What an upright guy. Except he's added to it. And then in the end, he doesn't follow it anyway. <laughs> he doesn't follow he, he Right? Except he does, in a sense. He doesn't touch it, and he doesn't eat it. He lets her do it. So he's this righteous guy teaching his wife the law. He's so righteous. He's more righteous than God. He adds to the law. And then what he does is he stands there and watches her touch it and her eat it because, you know, I, I've got more ribs. It's the first science experiment ever. What's going to happen? Is she really going to die? He's forgotten the whole idea about headship, though, and his responsibility to slay the dragon, to defend the garden. And he is, in fact, Adam is, the first Pharisee. I take the law so seriously, so seriously, that I am so righteous and like my God, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go even further than he went. And then I'm not even going to come close to actually obeying it. <laughs> And, and we think that that's a Pharisee problem in first century, those weirdos who are following Jesus around, watching him from the bushes, and then questioning him about what he's going to do. But how often do we take the law of God, and because we want to uphold it, and because we want to look religious, we go further than that, and make fun of other people who do the same thing, right? Drunkenness is such a sin, you're not even allowed to drink alcohol. Right? You bunch of drunks who have wine at communion. Because they want to guard themselves from drunkenness, and so what they include is drinking alcohol at all. Right? That's, that's like low-lying fruit. But how often do we do this very same thing to our wives and to our children, to, our, to one another? 
right? We're, we're, we're exact. We measure that toothpick in the other person's eye, and we know exactly the chapter and half verse we got to go to to prove to them that they are wicked. And the logjam in our own eye we seem to have missed. This kind of Phariseeism is common amongst religious Christians. God says, don't get drunk, so some teach that we're not even allowed to drink alcohol. This is something that I find, if you don't, if you're not careful here, right, we start to create all kinds of laws that create all kinds of inconsistencies. Here's an example of what I'm doing in pre-marriage counseling, okay? You have a wise couple who are older Christians, who are self-controlled, who have a great structure around them, and then we always end up with the conversation of, like, how far should we go? Can we hold hands? Can we kiss? That kind of thing. Like, well, you know, it's ultimately up to your parents. This is what I would say. If, when you see one another, go ahead and give a holy kiss, right? You can hold hands while you're walking on the beach. Whatever. I think you guys are going to be fine. I talk to you once a week. You're clearly good. People are checking in on you. You have self-control. You're fine. Then there's this other younger couple, and, and I'm not even comfortable with them talking to one another until the wedding. <laughs> and, and they're like, okay, you know, um, yeah, I don't... I guess we'll let you go out in public together, but you can't go there together. you got to meet there, right? If you're going to meet somewhere, meet at the mall where there's like 50,000 people to see what's going on, and don't go there together, go separately. Now, what would happen if I made this the standard for everyone? What would happen if I made this the standard for everyone? And this is a clear-cut case. What it requires is wisdom. How far do we take the law of God? Well, that depends on the circumstances. It depends on the people involved. It depends on the kids that you have, right? The rules for my house and my kids might be slightly different than the rules for your house and your kids. The rules for your marriage might be a little different. In marriage counseling, there's things that, I, that we do that I, I hear other couples and everything like that. Don't do that. That's not a good idea. You're toying with something there that I wouldn't. And it requires wisdom. What the Pharisees have is knowledge without wisdom. They have tons of knowledge with no wisdom whatsoever. Now, here, here's another thread I'm going to pull into this, right? We've got a lot of threads dangling. Don't worry, they're coming back around. They're walking along, and the disciples are eating. And the Pharisees have a question about what they're doing, and they ask what there is going on, and Jesus doesn't let the disciples answer for themselves. He answers for them. He's speaking on their behalf. He doesn't mind getting in trouble because of them, and he's willing, because he's a good man and a good leader and a man of God, to stand up and to speak for them. Right? Adam led his wife into some trouble and stood there and said nothing. Jesus' wife has gotten him into trouble, and he has no mind stepping up and taking the pitch. I'll swing at that one. Right? Your children, your wife, members of the church, other Christians, all kinds of people can get you into trouble. And are you willing to stand up and speak on their behalf? The other thing is the original audience here are Christians who are being heavily persecuted. And what they needed to know, that when they were questioned, God would stand up and speak for them. 
Whatever trouble you get in, I'm going to be there, and I have a word for you in that moment. And in, in actually, in, um, go back to Mark, chapter 13, verse 11, Jesus says something very much like that. And, and Mark is making the point earlier on, because the people he's writing to need to know, in the hour of your trouble, when you get into trouble, the Lord will be there. This is what it says, chapter 13, verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends his helper to help people in trouble because he's not Adam who just stands there and watches his wife get into trouble. Now, Jesus usually at this point appeals to his own authority. So far, we have a pattern up to this point. They ask a question, where do you, why are you letting your disciples do this? You're in charge. What is going on? And generally, he makes an immediate appeal to his own authority. But here, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. In fact, these guys who think they know so much, who think everyone who doesn't know the law is a curse, they think Jesus is a big dummy, the first thing that he says is, haven't you read... Right, The guys who apparently know the scripture so well, he immediately asks the question as if they haven't. He assumes they don't know what they're talking about. And he does it right in their face. This is a man who likes a little trouble. Right? Oh, my disciples got me into trouble. Let's get out of this trouble real fast. Let me quote some chapters and verses. Let me explain what reaping is or isn't. Right? It's not like the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, and then he explains marriage what the, the tradition is, and then he corrects it. He's not doing that here. He's not being careful. He's not, oh, okay, let's all calm down. I can explain all this from Scripture. He, he, he doubles down on the trouble. Well, haven't you read the Bible? <laughs> Could you imagine what they would say, right? Somebody comes to question you about your doctrine, and, and they have all these, <laughs> Westminster Confession of Faith and Calvin, <laughs> and you're like, hey, the Scriptures, man. It's, it's a backhanded, he, he, he's going to go all backhand here. They're not even going to see the real insult coming. I bet at this point they're already pretty fuming, just the fact that he starts that way. But he goes on. And he says, haven't you read that story about David in the days of Abiathar? Now, that's not, that story doesn't occur on a Sabbath. It's not about the Sabbath at all. So what is he doing? Why is he, right? He's not, he's like, oh, you want to talk about that? I don't want to talk about that. I'm going to talk about this over here. Talk about authority. And he doesn't come right at it. He says, you, haven't you read? You clearly don't have as much authority as you think you do because you haven't read it. But here's the story about King David, right? When, when David is on the lamb, he's on the run. He's the true king. He's been anointed. But there's still this guy who's a little crazy named Saul hunting him down, trying to murder him. And David is going around collecting a band of vigilantes, right? It's like the first uh, assembles Avengers. He's getting this team together, and they're right on the run, doing things that they're not supposed to do, like eating bread in the temple, causing all this trouble in Israel. And, and so Jesus isn't like, oh, let's talk about gleaning our Sabbath practices. He's like, no, no, no. You know, that's, it, it's like that time, David who was being hunted by a bunch of murderers, hello, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you guys, was assembling his team to, to invade Israel and to reconquer it. And, and David 
is greater than the law. David can go into the temple and eat bread that only priests can eat because David is a new kind of prototype of the Messiah. He's above the law. He is the law. He's the man after God's own heart. He is the one who's going to go on and write the, the Psalms, for goodness sakes. He is the one who is perfect in everything he does, uh, it says in Kings, except that one thing with the gal, which we're not going to get into now. Something about rooftops. Right? David was the king. And Jesus is like, you want to question me about where I'm getting off doing this? It's because I'm the son of David. I'm going to, I'm going to go right to this. This is what I'm talking about now. And this is super confusing. It's, a, it's confusing. Because me, I, I'm like, why, why would he do this? Why would he do this? And you've got to go and you've got to read it. <laughs> you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 21 and you read the story. And you're like, okay, I, I, okay, you're referring to yourself as David in this story. And these Pharisees are the high priests and the, ah, that's clever. That's clever. But it requires going and reading it. I didn't know. I, I, I was full of questions. Now we're going to get real serious. We're going to get real serious. Because he says in the days of Abiathar, the, yeah, there's a priest in the story in 1 Samuel 21, and his name is not Abiathar. Well, okay. Um, Jesus, uh, I, I don't, I guess I don't know. Have you read it? His name is not Abiathar. <laughs> and, and this is actually one of the areas where people really start to mess around with, what the, with the scriptures. People have changed manuscripts that we have. We, we can look at them. We're like, okay, they couldn't make heads nor tails of what he was doing here. They assumed Jesus misspoke. Or maybe, okay, we don't want to say that about the Lord. Maybe Peter forgot it, got the wrong one. Maybe Mark wrote the wrong one down. So people start messing around. Copyists actually mess, messed with the text. And now you get translations and they say all kinds of weird things trying to explain away what he's doing here. But what, what is this whole section about? <laughs> this section where Jesus is dealing with people who think they know the scriptures and don't is used by people who think they know the scriptures and don't. And I mean, that's the kind of cosmic irony behind human history that is even difficult to explain. Right? People prove that they're Pharisees <laughs> by the way that they deal with this section about Pharisees. Now, why? Why would Jesus say the name of Abiathar? What is that all about? Well, I'm going to use an example from another portion in Jesus' life. Mark chapter 11, verse 26. Now listen to this. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush? Now, first off, okay, um, there's five books of Moses, Jesus, so which book do you mean? And, I mean, okay, the first three chapters of Exodus, I think that's what you mean. I wouldn't really call that the part about a bush. I mean, there's a bush in the story, right? There's, it's, it's on fire, and there's an angel of the Lord there. And Moses is being called. So you could call it the calling of Moses. You could call it the burning bush. You could call it that time God revealed himself. But no, Jesus offhandedly, yeah, you know, the book of Moses with the bush. Now, is that what you would call exact? Is that what you would call precise? Now, why? Why does he answer this way? Now, first off, they don't have chapters and verses. 
So a lot of people make the stupid mistake that Jesus just doesn't know the script. Well, they don't, he didn't know the scriptures the way we do. Because you go back to 1 Samuel and Abiathar, the whole portion that comes after the story about the bread, one of the main characters is a guy named Abiathar. So it's the same thing. He's like, oh yeah, you know that section, that story about David and that Abiathar part. So he doesn't think of scripture the way we do. He's like, oh, one of the books of Moses about a bush. <laughs> I mean, you can't even say the second book of Moses about, about a bush. Now, why do you think he's, he's teaching this way? Now, this is a hard... I, I've, I've, I've actually tried to make the case for what I'm saying right now other times, and I've never been as... This is now the ammunition I've been looking for for years. Precision is not always the point. Because he wants you to do a little of the legwork. Which book of Moses? Go find out. The part about a bush, which bush? There's several bushes. Uh, go find out. You know that section about Abiathar when David is eating the bread. And, and, and you could see them probably thinking in their mind like, I don't, there's not a, what do you, uh, go look. Go wrestle with it. Go find out what it says. You think you know, you don't know. I know, and I'm telling you, it doesn't say what you think it says. And we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. This is the scriptures, man. You got to be exact. When you pronounce the word, you got to pronounce it correctly. <laughs> and sometimes the minister doesn't pronounce the word correctly. Sometimes the details are a little fuzzy. But the details are the thing that are, is causing the Pharisees to stumble. And so Jesus shows what he thinks about details. Whatever, man. The point of the story is that something greater than the temple, something greater than the law, something greater than the Sabbath itself is here. And you recognized it when it was David, because you look back, right? But at the time, you would have been on whose side? You think you know the who, you would be the heroes in that story, and you wouldn't be. The other fascinating jab here is that Abiathar is later has the priesthood taken away from him by the son of David. And now this, another son of David has appeared who's going to take the priesthood away from Israel. Does Jesus know what he's saying when he says Abiathar? I think he does. The rest of us have a difficult time, and so we want to go in and make it fit with what we think it ought to say, not what it actually says. And that is the lesson in this story. It's not about him being the Lord of Sabbath. It's about that, but we'll get to that. But before that, there is this treasure trove of information here about people who are religious and think they know the word of God who don't know the word of God. When God comes to Israel the first time, he wrestles with him. He brings trouble. God wants us to wrestle with him. Is that what the word said? I don't know. Let's go find out. Why would he use that story? He wants us to think about these things. He wants us to ponder them. He doesn't want us to just sit our little, right, dock, dockers in our pretty dresses, sit our little butts in this pews and have somebody spoon feed us. He wants us to struggle with what we hear because that requires faith. That requires diligence. That requires wrestling. He wants to wrestle with you. You think you know what he's doing, and you don't. You want to understand what he's doing, and there's only one way to do that. 
You want to know him, and so what you need to do is you need to go into his word, and you need to wrestle with him. The Pharisees have taken the Bible and have made it a list. Do this, check, do this, check, do this, check, don't do that, check. But it's not a list of rules. It's a person. There's a person behind the word of God. They are searching the scriptures like it was read for us today because they think that is what's eternal life. This is not eternal life. This is ink. This is fake leather. This is some fake gold paint. <laughs> right? What, what is this? This is nothing without him. And, and this is the fig leaf we use a lot. And what do we really do? We really use it to control people. right? I Give me a list that I can do, then I know I'm righteous, then I'm good to go. This without him is nothing. Him without this is nothing. That's hard. That requires wisdom. That requires knowing this better. <laughs> this, this requires us pursuing him better. Now, there's a fascinating, I'm, I'm, this, I, I'm always perplexed by this, but there's a verse that we know so well about the scriptures. I'm going to read it for you, but then I'm going to read the verse that comes after it, and I, and I hope that you catch the oddity of what's said. We think we know what it says. We don't know what it says. This is Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. A lot of you could probably just say this verse, but I'm going to read it for you. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, that's, man, scripture is intense. But verse 13 says this, and no creature is hidden from his sight. His, the word, the Bible's not a he, is it? This word isn't a he. Jesus is a he. He's the word of God. He is sharper than any two-edged sword. He pierces inside of us. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Well, okay, but I thought this was about the word of God, the Bible. Um, okay, what is the word of God, the Bible, about? See, we think we know what this says. Even, if, I mean, at first like that, right? I mean, that, they taught me that, like they took me up out of the water, and they're like, okay, there's a few things we need to know. One of them is this verse. And so I thought I've known it for years. But who is the word of God that they're referring to in this section? Well, this is what Packer has to say about this. Authority in Christianity belongs to God, the creator, who made us to know, love, and serve him. And his way of exercising his authority over us is by means of the truth and wisdom of his written word. As from the human standpoint, each biblical book was written to induce more consistent and wholehearted service of God. So from the divine standpoint, the entire Bible has this purpose. And since the Father has now given the Son executive authority to rule the cosmos on his behalf, Scripture now functions precisely as the instrument of God, Christ's lordship over his followers. 
All scripture is like Christ's letters to the seven churches in Revelations. Do you want to know him? There's no other way to know him but the word of God. But what so often happens is we detach this from him. And this becomes a stone tablet that we use, right, to worship it. We search it for salvation, right? If I have faith, faith saves me. No, faith doesn't save anyone. Faith in Christ saves you. Christ saves you. Believing in the word of God doesn't mean anything if you don't believe in him, Jesus. Now, is this a sermon about how I don't want you to read the Bible more? No. Because what we do is we are the Pharisees who think we know what it says, have learned just enough to cause trouble, but the wrong kind of trouble. How can you be a better husband? How could you be a better wife? What is God doing in your life? What do the promises of God have to do with you? What does genealogies in in, in Genesis have to do with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world and human history? The word of God isn't something to just be searched for a list. It's not something to be searched so you can find a happy verse to slap on the fridge. This is to be studied and wrestled with because the person you're studying and wrestling with is Jesus Christ. You can't have him without this. You can't have this without him. It's as simple as that. Oh, I've got him. I I was baptized. Uh, I I believe. Okay. Um, So what what does he want you to do today? What's his, what's his instructions? He's in charge. So what is his word to you today? This week? Right? Are, you, are you carrying all the things you're supposed to be carrying as a husband? Are you submitting in all the things you're supposed to be submitting to as a wife? Are you going out in the world causing God trouble? Like the disciples. Because we stand on the word of God. Or if we learn just enough of this to be super comfortable. When is the last time the word of God got you into any trouble? Whether you were quoting it to your wife, your husband, your kids, whether you're applying it at work, don't apply it on Facebook. That's, that's my one admonition to you. Please don't take the sermon and now go on Facebook and argue with people. That's not what I mean. This is what we stand by. And what is this about? It's not words. It's a person. It's a person. Isaiah 50, chapter, or chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I might know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Hebrews says, as long as it is today, hear his voice. Well, how do you hear his voice? He doesn't speak audibly. Today, hear his voice. And we say, oh, yeah, we've heard that verse before. We know that one. Okay, do you do that one? You're wandering around shepherdless. Sit down at the feet of the shepherd. You may not understand everything he's saying, but wrestle with it. He says, he tells a story. He makes a statement. You're like, okay, fine. All right, let's do this. Let's go to Lamentations. Let's read it. Let's see what that has to say. And then you read and you're like, what are they talking about? Yeah, wrestle with him. Why did he do that? Right? How did that? If you read Lamentations, you're like, who deserved this? Well, the people of God deserve that. And it's probably important that we know what, what led to it. I, 
I am a recovering Pharisee, right? I, think about it. What's my job now even? I, I'm, I'm going to read the Bible, and, I, and I'm going to get to know it. And, and what I like to do is find out just enough to be comfortable. Right? Nowadays, what's my temptation? What do I need to do so I can preach on Sunday? But, but is that really what the Word of God is meant to do in my life personally? Right now, okay, all right, it was right in my vows. Submit to my husband. We said it. It's very biblical. Our, our marriage is based on the Bible. Okay, in what area aren't, aren't you that you should be? Husbands, are, are you lifting and carrying everything you're supposed to? Are you disciplining your children? Are, are you growing in wisdom? Are you becoming more like the person who the book is about? The Pharisees understood the book, and they were nothing like the person it was about. And you know you're reading it well enough, you know you're reading it often enough when you're becoming like the person the book is about. That's it. Uh, it's not me coming over and being like, oh, good, you have Calvin's commentaries now. You guys are really on your way. No, it's when you're becoming, you're wrestling with him. And, and he's, he's hurting you and healing you. He's, it's, it's a knife into the heart. It's a knife into the tumor. He, he's doing surgery. And it's not this, it's him. It's personal. Right? When you walk up and stab somebody with a knife, it doesn't get more personal than that. And that's what the reading of the Word of God should be. Surgery. Today. Every day. And, and that is what we need to be. If we want to be people who are going to be obedient, who are going to be, have the right kind of marriage, the right kind of family, who are going to be confessing our sins like we should and loving people like we should and obeying and doing all the things that we're supposed to be, there's only one way to do it. Pursuing him. And the way we pursue him is through this. And so let us do that. Right? He, here it is. He's given it to us. He's not running away from us. He's laying himself out before you. What are you going to do? Here's what he's going to do. Here's what he's done. Here's what he's going to continue to do. What are you going to do? That's the question. And only you can answer that. I, I love Deuteronomy for this reason. Today, he says, I set before you life and death. And that's always what it's about. Every morning, he sets before you life and he sets before you death. There's a way to pursue life and there's a way to pursue death. The way of the cross is life. The way of death is yourself. The way of the cross, the way of him is the word of God. The way of death is your, just your own understanding, your own reason, your own logic. Your own list of pet sins. What are you doing gleaning out there, kids? How dare you? Let us be like him, and, and let us be like him by pursuing him, and let us pursue him by taking up his word and reading what it says about him. All of it. From Genesis to Revelation, all of it. And may that, may that be the thing that we are pursuing. Knowledge of him through his word. Fellowship with him through his word. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being here with us. We thank you for, um, Father, you, you are at hand. You are always at hand. You are here to comfort us by your spirit, to guide us, to fill our mouths with words when we need them. You, you have provided us with the word of uh, your word. You, you've provided it in our own language. You've provided um, an endless number of ways to help us understand it. You have provided us with a fellowship of believers in which to um, fill our hearts with it, to act, act it out, to be a part of this story that you are telling. I pray, Father God, that you would give us a, a, a deep, 
deep desire and love for your son, that we would pursue him and chase after him and wrestle with him, and that we would do so through your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would comfort us, that you would convict us, that you would forgive us, and, and Lord God, that you would give us the strength to, to take up our cross and to follow Christ, to, to take up our Bibles and follow Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.